This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. As we close this year of 2022, we look back at those who were part of the Seminole Wars living history community, but who are no longer with us or able to be active. This close-knit community of interest comprises academic historians for sure. It also hosts large numbers of public historians, the people I call citizen scholars. No paper chase for them to publish or perish. They research for the pure joy of discovery and the ability to share that discovery with like-minded individuals. With that criteria in mind, I can think of no one better to chat with today than Jeffrey Snively. Jeff is an everyman. That is, he's a spectator who comes out to the Seminole Wars Living History events. He could be anyone. In his case, he might be representative of the audience, given that he's been coming to these events for more than four decades. Let's just say he knows where the bodies fell and can even tell you how. Jeff grew up in Florida, the son of a Marine who fought at the Battle of Okinawa and who earned the Silver Star. More about him later. A Navy veteran himself, Jeff is not an academic historian or a living history interpreter. He's just, as he says, a regular guy. One with a deep passion, interest, and desire to dig deeper, to find out the whys in history. In our case, the Seminole Wars. Jeff has been attending commemorative events at the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park since 1983, before battle reenactments were introduced even. For 40 years, Jeff has met and observed everyone who's been part of raising awareness of these wars. And he's here to tell us what he recalls. We're in for a treat, folks, and it's not even Halloween. Jeff Snively, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Jeff Snively, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. I'm glad to do it. I think it's really neat. I'm proud to do it. Thank you. So it's a given you have an interest in history. I love history, all types of history. But? I never studied the Seminole Wars, ever. Never. Like I said, never heard of the Second never heard of Dave Basker. No, I never heard of the Second Seminole War in my life. That's the truth. I knew there were some wars, I thought, but I wasn't even sure. I never really looked into it. But how did you get an interest in the Seminole Wars? So my then wife, right, like Panasonic, just going for there. We go where we go. Dave, that's a day who? No, Dave's battle. That started me trying to get some more information. I was looking on microfilm. I'd like to dig deeper. Heck, I'm not, you know, I'm not a scholar or anything. I'm just a regular guy. But I learned, you know, by digging more and more. I wanted to know. I got into it heavily. I'm glad I did. It's been a neat journey. So I would encourage people to, if you love history like I do, it's so interesting. The history, like knowing, go back to where you've been, takes you up to where we are now. But a history buff all my life, all aspects of history, not just one particular time period. I love it to death. It's been my love for many, many years. It will continue to be till the day I, you know, go. It was a big war, and it happened here in Florida. It's indigenous to this state, you know? That's what's so cool. But it was not popular. A lot of the money spent for pretty much every general or the commanders that came down here were disgraced because they were. Especially Jessup with the flag, the flag of truce out for Osceola then capturing. He never lived that down. I had that book, too, with Jessup as quartermaster. He never, he never, he said, everybody agreed that was not, you don't do that. 
That was unfair. I think he carried that the rest of his life. And everybody else in the Army remembered it, too. <laughs> Thomas Sidney Jessup. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Well, Jeff, you bylined an article with Jesse Marshall, who's been a regular guest on this podcast. Tell us the backstory to that. Archie and I have been friends since 1993. Well, that's where I met him first, when he started reenacting the day. He one time told me, Jeff, I need you. What do you need me for, man? <laughs> he says, I need you to get a hold of Dr. Ray Jerome, ask him how many rounds, it's all the rounds in the can at the massacre were fired that day. And I still have an email from Ray on my computer. I just didn't want to erase it. The last day back that he intended was 2010. He died in February 2011. So I got a hold of him. He sent me a piece of paper. It's got a couple of historic things on it. One of them was in 1843 that, yes, all the rounds were expended. Some officer was telling that 40 rounds. That's pretty much what I gave the article. He sent me that piece of paper. Comes out of some archives or some book. I've still got a copy of it somewhere. But that did you just said. I said, well, Archie, they shot all the rounds out of 40 rounds. What they had with them. Uh, that six-pounder. I was very glad to help. In your research, you came across a valuable letter. What was this letter? 2006, I found that letter on the rolls. And your letters were received. What the number was, I don't know. And I was doing research, so I found that incredible letter written by Richard Bland Lee. Richard Bland Lee was a cousin to Robert E. Lee. But it was just amazing because it's so descriptive about who was where and this and that. And I like to read the letters because they lived it. That's what's important to me. The letters are, you know, these people lived it. And if you can read them, sometimes it's hard to read, but it's very interesting from their point of view. Okay, this cousin of Robert E. Lee, Richard Bland Lee, is in a battle. It was near Micanopy. The Battle of Wakavapa, July 19, 1836. That's when the battle was. They were marching for Micanopy. Richard Blandley was wounded terribly in that battle. He took very seriously. He had having a attendant with him all the time. He recovered. I still have a notebook on Richard Blandley, the information I got from about him. He's on the battle of what I would But there's a lot more to him. I mean, I'm just saying, but that's the information. You know, a lot of people, I've never heard of him. I only heard of him because he wrote that letter. Yeah, I looked him up and started, I have a whole thing on him that I've made up about him. I still have that letter. So you and Archie had been collaborating before this, sharing research and so forth. When he was working down here in the Veterans Museum, he was a curator, 301, before it all changed years ago. We were exchanging a lot of information. He would give me a draft of something he was going to come up with and ask me about it. He would give me, what do you think? He asked me for my opinion. I want your name on this article, Jeff. You deserve it. That's pretty neat. That's what he told me. I remember that. He always said, Jeff, you know a heck of a lot. You know, it may give yourself credit for it, but you do, because you've done research. I know you have. I have. Sure, I have. We went to the USF in Tampa a couple times when back then it was on microfilm. Army and Navy Chronicle was on microfilm when I was making some copies. He showed me how to work it, and that was down in the basement of the library there at Tampa, Florida. Last fall, Jesse, also known as Archie, Marshall was our distinguished guest for our special series, Marshall Matters of the Seminole Wars. Listen to one of his podcasts, and that was incredible. What do you had to say? Very good researcher on the time period. 
Jeff, you've met some notable luminaries in the Seminole Wars Foundation community. Frank Lomer in 2002 had Seminole Wars Foundation mean right there at Dade Lodge. Dr. John Mann, Dr. James Covington, Bill Goza, the three of them. Bill Goza, of course, was the first in 63 when they did working trail walk with Frank and him from Tampa, Fort Brook, Dade's Massacre. He was a real nice guy. They all were. They were. They sure were. We say Mahan, but you heard it straight from the man himself, Dr. Mann. U.S. Emeritus, history professor at the University of Florida for years and years. He goes, don't call me Dr. Mahan. Just call me Dr. Mann. Everybody calls me Dr. Mahan. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I said, yes, sir. Everybody else said, and he's the one that told me straight to my face. So then uh, I said, Dr. Man, and I always will refer to him like that. That's what the man told me. <laughs> hey, I talked to him just briefly. He told me that in 1996, actually. We were sitting outside at where cars could park in that one place at day because I wanted him to sign my original copy of his revision of the first one was, I think, in 67. So they did a revised edition, I think, in 1985 and put a new cover on it. Yes, that was his, no pun intended, seminal work, the history of the Second Seminole War. And then I was standing there until I wanted to get an autograph. He's signing. We're just having a chit-chat. And the subject of forts came up. And he told me that he thought that the recreation of Fort Foster, which they built in 1989, originally now used mostly inmates to just south of me, just a little south of me. There's a correctional institution in Denver Hills. And they used them for the labor. But he said one thing I never forget. He said, I think that fort is accurate right down to the last nail. <laughs> That's what he told me. Speaking of that recreation of Fort Foster, the structure itself has fallen on hard times, as Louis Bear's heart shared with us on an earlier podcast. In one sense, that's no surprise, really, given the Florida climate. And the rebuilt Fort Foster has lasted many, many years longer than the original post. But it can't last forever. Wood deteriorates, etc. Fortunately, there is a means for the public to help with its restoration. Listeners who would like to contribute can visit GoFundMe.com and then in the search bar, type in Restoration of Fort Foster. All of us thank you. It doesn't look anything like Fort King. When I saw Fort King first time, that was August of 2020. The only time I've seen it. Fort Foster looks a lot different. Of course, we need to understand that each fort was purpose-built. So a fort on top of a hill, as Fort King was, would have a different need for its construction than the one just off a river, which was Fort Foster. Both distinct and... Both could be accurately reconstructed for their specific location and circumstance. Fort Foster had people set up with all kinds of weapons and one of the blockhouses was showing all this kind of stuff. I'll never forget them. But he said that. And I heard somebody else kind of tell you that he said that other people have said that's much cruder. It would have been more crude than what they built. That's what I've heard from people. That's their opinion. But he said it was extremely accurate, Dr. Mann. So you engaged with Dr. Mann. Dr. Mann was very close to Frank Laumer. When Dr. Mann passed away, he sent the Seminole Wars Foundation, of which Frank Laumer was a co-founder, 
a generous monetary bequest for use in research by the public about the Seminole Wars. Dr. Mann also donated his library of military books. Together with Frank Laumer's collection, more than 500 books related to the Seminole Wars and how wars are fought graced the shelves of the Foundation's first library at Frank Laumer's homestead, Talisman. From that seed, with Frank Laumer's books already, about 500 Seminole Wars-related books, today the Seminole Wars Foundation has built that to a mighty oak, or at least sitting on mighty oak bookshelves. Seminole Wars Foundation celebrated its 2,200th book. These books have been properly labeled and categorized and sorted. And as we move into 2023, those citizen scholars like Jeff Snively will be able to visit the foundation headquarters in Bushnell, Florida, and inspect and research among those books. As Jeff related, he scoured many a university's archives looking for information, digging deeper, as he likes to say, to find answers that he had about the Seminole Wars. With a collection of 2,200 books, future Jeff Snively's looking for a one-stop authority on Seminole Wars-related books, just need to make one trip to the Seminole Wars Foundation homestead in Bushnell. Being a Seminole Wars Foundation member, Jeff crossed paths many times with Frank Laumer. What do you remember about Frank Laumer? Frank Laumer? I met him so long ago, back in the 80s, maybe at the 150th Susquehanna Centennial in 1985. One time, he showed me he owned that Ford Dade, those houses are and everything around his mansion. They own that property. And he told me, Jeff, there's part of the Fort King Trail right here. I, I can show you. There's a little section of it I can show you. So I'd love to see it. So it's just back into his neighborhood, and I went there. It was interesting just to know that was part of the Fort King Trail. Kind of cool. He knows I had looked up stuff I looked up about Dr. Jarvis. The Seminole Wars Foundation's secretary, Sam Smith is editing a journal from Dr. Jarvis, who practiced during the Seminole Wars. I had to loop through so many hurdles and hoops north of Orange County to get that copy of that diary of his, which I have a copy of here. The other one with some big letters. My wife put it on there, donated by Jeffrey S. Snively. He was up there on the second floor forever of this house. What Jeff had done was attend a Living History event at Fort Christmas, where he learned that there was a transcript available for a journal written by a surgeon during the Second Seminole War. Jeff had done a lot of research already and had never heard of such a journal. So Jeff set out to get it. He was glad to get that Jarvis diary. He was thankful. I gave him tons of letters when I was doing their heavy research at the uh, downtown library in Tampa, getting the microfilm reels, of course, from Tallahassee. And, uh, I understand Frank was always gracious, but sometimes could be a little gruff. He got lots of war books. He didn't say a whole lot. I told him about my dad, just in Nokonali, that war, tough job. Yeah, you might say so, wouldn't you? <laughs> he was an interesting guy. I signed my book back in, finally, the Massacre book back in 1990. Yeah, I've got all the books signed by him. That first book is what I first ever got. I don't even know where I got it, because it came out in 1968. I know that. He signed it in 1990. He signed it. You know, you can't read it. I never could read his name. Have you ever seen his signature? I mean, the making, it's like, what is it? Not that I never said I didn't ever say that stuff like that. I said, okay, fine, thank you. And that was one after one of the reenactments. We were up there with my three little kids. We were bringing them up there to that reenactment back in the day. 
I found Frank. Jeff, you got a story about Frank Laumer doing a dig at the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park in the early 1960s. What was that all about? I found out later on, Judge Dick Tombrink, he was actually there. He was in junior high at that time. He was present for it. And also that when Dr. Mann, they were talking about, he was talking about doing a dig there to verify that was the place where their remains were, I guess. Dr. Mann said, God damn it, Frank, it's your dig. Dig it. I love it, man. He said that. I said, yeah. <laughs> it's right. I'll never forget this. I have it in my mind. He told me that. Dr. Mann told me that. Not Frank Lommer, because I guess he's getting permission and everything to do that dig. Of course, he had to. But uh, that's what Dr. Mann told him. I think he was under Dr. Mann's wing. I know he respected him a lot. I know that. As well as everybody, I think, really. He's very intelligent. Dr. Mann, I've seen him through the years. He came to Frank's house a few times during some meetings. I was always just cool to talk to someone like that. It was pretty neat. We've mentioned the late Ray Jerome several times in our podcast episodes. You, of course, wrote him and asked him some questions. And you actually had face-to-face dealings with him. What was he like, this leader among living historians for the Seminole Wars period? I didn't know him for years. He was a choreographer there for the battle. He played Captain Gardner, the goddamn soldier. The Seminole later reported this stout leader repeatedly shouted the Lord's name in vain as he cajoled and exhorted his men to do their best. He used to live in a town called McIntosh, just south of Gaysaw, 441. There, he had a shop there with some stuff. Oracles he would sell. And I stopped in a couple times and saw him there. I found out just that I thought the guy was kind of uppity, but he wasn't. But when I got to know him, I already found out he was a nice guy. And Ray, he did not just choreographed the battles for the Seminole Wars living history interpretations. He actually did it with living historians in Hollywood movies. Gettysburg, he was involved with that in several movies, uh, choreographing the battles. I thought that was really neat. He knew his stuff. And you had a similar feeling about Steve Abelt, who also choreographed battles, and whom our listeners know insisted that the living historian reenactors recognize this is a tribute to those who fought here, and they should take it very seriously. Little short guy, had big sideburns, Steve Abel. Looked like he was pissed off sometimes. And I've always thought he was unapproachable. I never got to meet him. He was always around. I mean, he was, I didn't know how to. But? But once I got to know him, another one I said hi to, and I said, I've been coming here for years, Steve. I think he said, yeah, I think I've seen you. Good, thanks. We start talking. Later, Steve Abel did something that you keep as a treasured memory. Longtime listeners know that at the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park, every January, the first weekend after New Year's, is a living history reenactment of the Dade Battle. But several days before that, December 28th, the actual date of the battle, the park, in conjunction with the Dade Battlefield Society, holds a memorial service with living historians narrating the proceedings and manning the color guard. This is where Steve Abel comes back into our story. I'll never forget this. Somebody mentioned to me, Jeff, we do a nine o'clock service out here. We have luminaries going on. We have a soldier and each person that was killed that day and uh, right there in the barricade. And I said, really? I'm not hang around for that. Years and years ago, they didn't do that. There was no service for the luminaries and everything. 
And I remember him talking. It was a very cold night, too. Might have been year 2000, because 2000, it was a cold. We had a really cold winter. Cold, I mean, cold weather. Because a lot of times we say, hey, the blue uniforms are coming handy, don't they? <laughs> he was the one going to read off the names. He goes, ladies and gentlemen, we're out here somewhere that most people know nothing about. What took place here so many years ago, but you all are here. Besides to reenact, I usually stay for it, but first time with him, just something about him. When he said that, it just quiet and a very humbling thing to watch. I just never forget it. He almost looked kind of spooky to me. <laughs> he was a fireball. Jeff your path certainly crossed with the late John Griffin and his nephew, Matt Griffin, black Seminole descendants. I knew John Griffin just a little bit, saying hi to him. Matt Griffin, I remember him when he started reacting. He was so young. He's a nice guy. He was really nice. John Griffin was too. Well, you've got the passion and the smarts to be a reenactor, living historian yourself, but you haven't done it. I never reenacted. I remember telling Frank one time, he says, why don't you reenact, Jeff? I said, I don't have the money, Frank. The musket costs a lot of money. Then you got the clothes. What do you do? Are you going to pay for He said, Jeff, most of these guys get it piecemeal, he told me. This is years ago. I didn't have the money. I told him I have a family to raise. I can't spend it on this. However, I get it, especially the weapon. And I'm kind of a shy person in a way sometimes, but uh, I've always been amazed by it through the years because, you know, back in the day when Ray Jerome was doing it, I don't know who plays Gardner now, but you know, they were saying God damn, and then they heard some flack about that, spectators, because the kids and all were hearing that word. He was just saying what the man did say at the battle. That's what he said. And he took flack over that. He sure did, because they commented and said, wait a minute, this man's out there cussing and stuff. <laughs> anyway. Another longtime member of the community is Ralph Van Blarkham. He has donated his extensive collection of Seminole War era related artifacts to the Pioneer Florida Museum in Dade City, but it was a long road to get there. How did you first encounter Ralph? Ralph Lamb Barkham. Met him down at Fort Foster back when they were having the rendezvous and he played the quartermaster there at the fort. I remember that. He was always real nice to me. And I said, I'm really into this. And he asked me my name. He just talked about the things, and he would describe the things relating back to that period, Patrick, what these were, the sale or supplies and all. He would talk about that. We talked on the phone, son. So you met Ralph at Fort Foster. Where did he display his artifact collection at that time? They used to sit in Frostbridge Museum in Frostbridge, Florida. And then it was in the Veterans Museum for a while. And it was also a lot of the stuff was in the Hillsborough State Park Museum. The interpreters started there for a while. Then something came up. He took his stuff out, and then he acquired the Keller collection. It's sad to be it. When Archie was curator at the Veterans Museum, that's the first time ever. All the stuff was in that interpreter. They had their own stuff in there. Then they had in the vet. They had it all there for many, many years. So that was really neat. They had a mannequin of a soldier, like they have a day. You also made acquaintance with the now emeritus USF professor, Brent Wiseman. Dr. Wiseman has ties to this Seminole Wars Foundation. He was the longest tenure of any president, whole decade. Easy to talk to. And he was very knowledgeable, of course. He's gone to some of the sites. He's gone to Boggy Island out there where he for Osceola, where they were held up in the Withacoochee. It's called Boggy Island. They found artifacts and stuff relating to the time period. It was Seminole, because they were trying to hide. They wanted a place where they could relax, just live, live, period, right? He did a paper on it, did a study on that. He was out there. 
noted with a lot more people, but he was one that headed it up. He was a pleasant fellow. We talked about Seminole War. He was just always so nice. People are going to remember that. Fellow academic James Covington, did you meet the doctor? What time I think I came in contact was that one time in 2002 at the meeting right there at Dade Lodge. Nicest man you want to meet, too. I think he was born in 1917, same year John F. Kennedy was born. So you were there, James Covington, Brett Wiseman, John Mahan, er, pardon me, John Mann, and Frank Laumer for the Seminole Wars Foundation meeting. And then Frank spoke. Frank was really interesting. He started talking. He started going to it. I was like, wow, man, listen to this now. This is it's personal. But one of them said, you a lawyer? They said, no, sir, I'm not a lawyer. And somebody, <laughs> so he said, well, good. He said, uh, you're not missing out on anything. <laughs> they, they laugh. It was a funny moment. That was a funny moment in my life. Somebody asked me, are you a lawyer? <laughs> no, sir, I'm not. <laughs> That's the one time I really think I came in contact with James Covington and Bill Goza, actually. Listeners know that lawyer Bill Goza was a friend of Frank Laumer, and the two of them and some friends actually walked the Fort King Road back in 1963. Jerry Morris, he also walked the Fort King Road with Frank Laumer, albeit in 1988. Jerry Morris, known him for years. He's always been a good guy. I've gone over to his home on Elf Palmer Road down in Tampa. Very knowledgeable. He used to reenact. I remember him out there playing his day. He's always very pleasant. Then one day he asked me the question, Jeff, how do I get in the Seminole Wars Foundation? I said, Jerry, just show up, man. I'll tell you when the next one. Just show up, man. Okay? You know where Frank's house is. If you don't, I'll tell you. But just show up. That's what. I had no invitation, and I showed up. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's true. I showed up, and I was given, I mean, the money, the dues, but I think I just showed up. Like one time, I didn't know that Sunday after the battle, they had a party at Frank's home. Went in there, and voices were loud stuff. That old door that was the front door, that big old heavy, heavy, heavy door. It was 95 when Dave's Last Command came out, and I was going to have him sign it. And then nobody came to the door. I said, but there's a lot of party going on here, Jeff. <laughs> they used to do that, Emmendale. They have their people come over, different people and stuff like that. Because then I went to some of my business. Well, you're Jeff. You can come to it if you want. So I started coming, we started showing up there. So Jerry, Jerry's very knowledgeable. Jerry and Jeff Howe wrote the Fort King Road, and that was the biggest seller of any book they've ever had. He told me right out, he said, Jeff, Frank edited the heck out of this thing. Things he edited out of this book, what Jeff and I did here with this book, you and several people, and a lot of people just like you with the interest, would want to know what was said. But he edited that out. Jerry was not happy either, trust me. <laughs> For those who wonder, Frank Laumer never, ever threw anything out. <clears throat> so although we cut out passages of the final version for the Fort King Road then and now, we do have the errata in our files at our foundation homestead. Jerry used to go to schools and stuff with a musket back in the day. He did this. He took his musket, his 1816 smoothbore musket to the school. He did. He did take it. He did do this because they allowed it just for educational purposes. He would take it and describe the part about the musket. That's what he could do. You could never do it today, of course, but uh, he did that. We went to elementary school. Think about the food. He was at several places with that. 
it wasn't just date. He went around with that. I learned a lot from him, to tell you the truth. As have we all. New living historian Stephen Dennis has taken Jerry's work, emulated it, and continues on the tradition of showing what the soldiers ate on the march. We know for sure because of the work of Jerry Morris, digging up the information out of archives and obscure sources. Unlike the distinguished academics that you mentioned, Jeff, such as Dr. Mann, Dr. Covington, Dr. Wiseman, at the time, Jerry was a long-haul trucker, high school graduate, airborne paratrooper in the Army, stock car racer, marathon distance roller skater, and sleuth on the trail of Billy the Kid in Texas and New Mexico, author of a children's book, man who measured out portions of the Fort King Road. And Jerry, apparently the only person in 175 years or so to ask the question, what did these soldiers eat on the march? And then to follow through with research to discover the answer by replicating the recipe. Jerry proved what the written accounts said. Fortunately for us, he published it in his booklet, An Army Moves on Its Stomach. In that respect, as a researcher, Jeff, you've got a lot in common with Jerry Morris. Both have the pure joy of discovery and the tenacity to do it. We'll call you citizen scholars. Being a citizen scholar, you perhaps acquired a book or two in your life that you call your own? I bought a lot of books on difference. I read not just about similar wars. I mean, author Nathaniel Philbrick. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's great. He's a great author. I've got a heck of a collection. I don't know what will happen to it after I leave this earth. Not to be morbid, but we at the Foundation have some ideas for you. Well, Jeff, you've made friends with not just the living historians who portray soldiers. You've also made friends with one who portrays a sailor from the period. There was a guy, Greg Centeni. He had the whole uniform and everything. Who I called last year and talked to him. He come up there. He was in U.S. Navy like I was, but earlier than I was, right? He served on the aircraft carrier of USS America three years. Then he was in Naval Reserve, and he went all the way up to Chief Pay Officer. Then he would come out with some weapons of the time period. What he was doing was bringing the naval side into it. There was a naval side to Fort Foster now when they first garrisoned that fort. The Navy did some garrison at that fort, Fort Foster. And I had the book by Colonel Rankin, Small Arms of the Sea Services, Colonel Robert H. Rankin, USMC, retired. Small Arms of the Sea Services. It's a history of the firearms and edged weapons of the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard from the Revolution to the present. So it's pretty comprehensive. Looks like it was a 1972 book. That's an informative book. It's classic to me. Yeah, that's a very good book. I was flipping through it. He had that book. That's where I learned of that book. And I got me a copy because I don't know if I paid $79 for that book. It's got all kinds of about the armaments back in the Navy, back in those time periods, the history. But that's not all that was in this book. Suddenly, it got personal. Then I turned the page, I go, that's my dad right there. It's an official U.S. Marine Corps photo, took it of my dad in the Battle of Okinawa. It was his comrade in his arms right there next to him. My dad never knew it was taken. He said, you're kidding me, that's your father? Right there in the foreground, Greg. Find something. Robert Edward Snively, age, was 19 years old. I just can't believe it. I said, yeah, it's him. Trust me, it's my dad. I know that picture all my life since I was a kid. He had in his den. He had a lot. I got some of his stuff. 
He had this dead in here, this uh, mobile home I live in that he had on the wall. Bunch of stuff I have on him, my dad. But Greg was just so, he was enthused. I can't believe that's so neat. You can identify a person. That's your father. Wow. That's unreal. <laughs> it's an official Marine Corps photo. It'll always be out there. I could look up Battle of Okinawa photos. I could probably bring it up. I have a lot here, pictures that are, that are official Marine Corps photos at Okinawa. to always be around. And he had that on his wall in his den, Winter Haven, Lake Summit, where we lived. We were growing up. But he shot off to the moon when he saw it. I can't believe this. He was so excited. I was so excited to let him know that, that I saw his excitement, and he about ready to go nuts or crazy, you know? Greg Centeni. We were very close. And he came up for years there doing his spiel, and he had that book, and I was just a little things, couple things set up. He didn't have too many artifacts. Yeah, it's a great book. And that inspired me to get it because oh, it's just such a good book. And plus, I had that picture. <laughs> Jeff, you also made acquaintance with some Seminole. I go back to Billy Cypress. He did the narration of the Seminoles for years and years. He just for the battle. He was up on all of that. So when he died in April 2004, it was sad. Every two years, the Seminole Wars Foundation gives out the Frank Laumer Legacy Award. It recognizes a legacy of service over many years to raising awareness about the Seminole Wars period. Frank was the first recipient, and Billy Cypress was the second. Yeah, a lot of information. He was gentleman. I'd go up to him. I could talk to him. Just ask him a few questions. That's all. You've mentioned some of the state parks where living history interpretations of Seminole Wars battles are held. But you've also been to seminal sites and seminal run events. I've been to that museum down there a few times, down Big Cypress. I've been to the Kissimmee Flu Shootout twice. It's a long ways to go, but I went there. First time was when it was 2006, the Summer Wars found it was having an event, but it rained. I mean, we're talking rain that, I mean, I'm talking torrential rain. Like, rain we're talking rain, rain, and rain that night, rain, rain. Oh my gosh, it rained. And I remember Frank and Dale couldn't come, but Chris Kimmel was there, just a few of us. And then we went in the museum, I remember that. And we went back to where they have the vault of their documents and everything, letters and what all. They had one letter they showed us was written like a day after the battle by Zachary Taylor. The Battle of Okeechobee, Christmas Day, 1837. And I always kept my mind on that, and I pursued it, and I got me a copy of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting what he wrote. They had a lot of information. We got the whole tour. That's when I first went out, the very first time. I was pretty impressed with it myself. So the first day, I mean, we went out there. We were, you know, you know, walking in. I think they did have a reenactment, but it was I mean, the ground was saturated, you know. Okay, Jeff, let me switch gears here a little bit. We've talked about some of the personalities. Now, give us some reflections of reenactments and living history demonstrations. I've seen it where it's highs and lows in places like Dade or even Fort Cooper and all places. I've been to, it's more informative, I think. Maybe it's because it's new to me. It was all new to me. My then wife, she took me down to that year of 83. They didn't have a reenactment yet, I don't think. I'm not sure when they started reenactment. At first, they didn't, but this is sesquicentennial that was amazing the sesquicentennial in 1985 i've never seen that place with more people than you can count i mean it was a big to do there was soldiers all reenactors seminoles seminole i guess you can say god it was so big there were so many more participators 
screen actors and everything. And Billy Cypress alive. He did a great job. After that, nobody coming up to do the side of the Seminoles side of that battle. It was only on uh, what Frank Lommer set up. But there's been so many of them that died, which I knew through the years. I learned about it mostly coming to the day. Like I said, where's so-and-so? They're gone. They're dead. They died. You and I are spectators when we come to the living history events. Those who participate certainly have a rush. And I find it to be exhilarating to witness such a spectacle, creating an impression of the past. It is an exhilarating, Phil. Patrick, sure is. Yes, it is. But more so back when there was more, and when that time when they brought the two oxen, I didn't know about that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a rain actor. The guy had two oxen. They're enormous. Those are enormous. An ox is an enormous animal. That would be impressive to see. Each year, usually, the troops pull the limber and pull the cannon. This leads to an impression that they pulled it the entire trip. Having the oxen pull is accurate, but only up to a point since they failed along the trip and they had to replace them with horses. They kept the oxen to pull the wagon. And they, of course, perished in the date battle. I know what you mean. And I can't remember. I guess I can remember everything, but I guess back in the day, I guess the horses did pull. They had some horses pulling. Then I, I said, wow, they're doing it all now, pulling the lumber. They got a pull six-pounder out there. Of course, that's inaccurate, but I knew it. I won't say anything. It's not my place, my, my book. But uh, when I'm out there today, you know, I look where Frank's always stood. And he always stood at the same spot. He was doing the, his narration of the battle. I always think of him on that oak still there. He always hung out there. He's always there. And that Seminole was on the other side. I think he had a podium, actually, Billy Cypress, because he was back in the day. I was saddened when he died in April 2004. He was, I think, a Vietnam vet, too. I'm pretty sure about that. Another nice, nice guy. Jeff, Citizen Scholar Snively, thanks for joining us and sharing your recollections about those who've passed before us for the Seminole Wars Authority. I'll say this, Patrick. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Take care, okay? This podcast is copyright 2022. The Seminole Wars Foundation. All rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminalewars.podbean.com or seminalewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.